0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Now, I hope at this point that everybody listening or watching on YouTube to this show has checked out the four part documentary series titled Let Us Pray, which is streaming on max. If you haven't, you need to because it features some incredible stories from brave survivors of abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. And one of the central figures in the series is Ruthie Heiler. She's one of the co founders of the blind eye movement, a movement that is seeking to equip other survivors like Ruthie, and she is also someone who put her own abuser behind bars. When we recorded our first interview, which released a couple weeks ago, that interview was recorded about a year and a half ago. Ruthie was in the midst of a ongoing legal battle for justice against her abuser, Aaron Willand. If you've watched the series, Let Us Pray, then you know that Aaron Willand is now behind bars for 11 to 40 years. The interview you're going to hear today was recorded after the sentencing was passed, but before the release of Let Us Pray, about exactly one week before Let Us Pray premiered on Investigation Discovery. So in the conversation, neither Ruthie or I had seen the series yet, but we're going to talk a little bit about what we were hoping the series would be, and I think it met a lot of those hopes and dreams for the series, and we also talk about some of the biggest concerns, and fears of these stories being shown on a large scale. Ruthie also reflects on the experience of putting her abuser behind bars, her current advocacy work, and what life is like now. This is a really powerful look at Ruthie's story. It's by no means a deep dive into every aspect of her case. For that, I would defer you to Let Us Pray, Uh, but Ruthie really opens up here. And I had a really good time reconnecting with her almost a year after a previous interview. So, please enjoy this conversation with Ruthie Heiler. I definitely want to talk with her at some point about her overall thoughts on the series now that we've both seen it, but maybe that'll be a part three. We'll have to see. But for now, enjoy part two of my conversation with Ruthie Heiler. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Ruthie, we are reunited again, like our annual (laughs) check-in.
2: Annual check. Yeah. has it been a year?
0: Uh Yeah. It's been a little yeah. over a year. I think it was October. I should have wrote the date down. I think it was like October of 2022 that we met. Oh no, it was April of 2022. So it's been like a year and a half. And then we filmed again in, was it October? That we were back in, that we were in Michigan? Yes. Yeah, October 14th. Mm-hmm. So man, that is crazy. <laughs> so the first time that we met was literally shooting for this documentary series. And it was probably the most awkward way to meet anybody ever (laughs) because we had never I don't think we ever talked like I was aware of you Mm -hmm. and I had seen some of your stuff, but I don't think we'd ever like communicated at all until like that day. And it was like, you're interviewing Ruthie. She's coming in now and we're rolling. Go. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that that was kind of how it was with meeting everybody involved in the series was we want to capture the introduction on film. So yeah. don't reach out to them. And I'm like, this is, I am kind of introverted. So this is the most awkward yeah. <laughs> meeting of people ever. So it was very, and you have cameras in your face and you're already uncomfortable. So it's very oh. weird.
0: Well, I think, so that day, cause that was in, I think, yeah, it was April of 2022. So like that day I had done my filming day Like, so it was like whatever, eight o'clock in the morning till I think like four. And then I think, and they were just interviewing, it was like three hour interview. And then, then there was like a couple more hours of showing them stuff and talking about it. And then I think your flight got in late or something. And so like you got in there, like at, I think it was like five or six. And then we interviewed for two hours. And then for anybody who's doesn't, hasn't seen any of this, like it was literally like a room that was like the size of a closet with like. Yeah. three massive cameras like right or one massive camera three people like just right in our face like where my hand is it was like right there and they're like okay meet act natural do your show right. and then like and then like midway through like then I'm getting directional like can you ask it again this way it was like it was yeah. such a weird shake up from just being on zoom or like riverside and just talking um but we did it. We did it. We survived. It. <laughs> so, so going back to that time, like I didn't remember anything we talked about, like, cause it was such a weird situation. And when I was listening to it again, a few months ago, a few weeks ago now listening to our conversation, mm-hmm. hearing the story, like it was so interesting kind of getting back into the headspace of that time period. And you were at that point talking about, you know, I'm nervous. I don't know when the next you know, trial date is going to be. I'm emailing back and forth. Like it was a lot of frustration about just being stalled in the legal process. Um, do you recall like kind of the feeling of that time period and like what was going through your mind as we're sitting down to do this, you're shooting and telling your story while also your story is not done. <laughs> you're still in right. a very frustrating chapter. Like what were you feeling at that point?
2: Yeah, it um just like overwhelmed and kind of questioning if I did the right thing. I'm like, I was expecting to go through a trial court, something. Um, But when he gets arrested and then it's over two years later and you don't have any answers, you don't know um, like what the next step is, what, what the process is going to be like. It was definitely very like, I felt defeated in a way. Um, Especially with, the little bit of communication we were getting. And it was kind of almost like, we'll let you know when something new happens, Um, kind of leave us alone. And I would check in like probably every three to six months. So it was just getting really frustrating at that point. And I remember when we were talking, like just feeling like defeated to the point of, you know, if nothing happens, I guess nothing happens at that point. So it was definitely frustrating.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely like a, you know, I got this sense just hearing your story and hearing hundreds of stories that have gone through this process is like that re-traumatization of going through the legal process where it's like Mm -hmm. for, and I've heard some survivors say, I don't know if this would be your sentiment too. I've heard some survivors say it's more traumatizing than the initial abuse at times because it's so drawn out and it's so public and there's so much, you know, back and forth and, you know, Obviously you have people that are turning on you or feel like you're being abandoned by certain people. It's just a really lengthy and, and hard process. And I got that sense from our conversation with you waiting. And then later, months later, we're sitting in a courtroom in Michigan. And it's like, it's such a cold feeling environment where it's like, yes, this is justice, but it feels so wrong still. like this doesn't feel mm-hmm. right. And um, I, I guess I guess from your experience now, hindsight being 2020, like what do you wish was different? And I'm sure it's a long answer. What do you wish was different about how the legal system and the press deals with survivors who are going through that lengthy, lengthy process?
2: Um, so it COVID definitely didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> but just right. the fact of um more communication. There just wasn't A lot of communication as far as, you know, even just that I know you're waiting to hear something, you know, kind of a positive, um, you know, keep your head up. We're still working on this, you know, um, any kind of communication. And it just wasn't really there. It was me as the victim reaching out um, Mm. to where I felt like I was a pest. (laughs) So it was just unfortunate. Um, But ultimately, I felt like too that a lot of this should have been done back when I was younger. Um, So I just felt like we did everything right by reporting everything back in like 2006, 2005, um, not realizing that he could still be charged in Michigan. Um, And so when I did do the article with Sarah Smith, you know, I didn't know that there was any possibility of charges, which you know, I'm glad I did, but it definitely tore open the wound all over again. I, I still felt like that vulnerable, you know, 14, 15-year-old going through all of it the first time. Um, and then to have, you know, it drawn out so long, it was definitely very um, harmful in a way to my mental health. and And I just felt almost... What's the word I'm looking for? Um, It put me back in that feeling of not being worthy of um, like protection that the Mm. IFP puts over you. Um, But this time it was it was by, you know, the court situation. It was just it was hard for sure. Yeah
0: yeah, well, you've already been betrayed so much by authority in that sector. And then it's like then you step into the group that's supposed to like swoop in and save the day. and it's a lot of the same treatment. And mm-hmm. I think you know, I think that's an unfortunate thing. Um, I, I, you know, one of the things like I mentioned your story was very public. um got a lot of press coverage and and you know, obviously, I mean, there's a series sometime around when this comes out, that's heavily featuring your story. And one of the things that you told me was that you wanted to share your story because other people were sharing your story and you want to make sure it was told from your voice. And it's a scary thing. You know, you go into a docu series and at the end of the day, there's an editor and you go into a newspaper at the end of the day, there's an editor and a journalist putting a story together. And so it's hard to have control over your own story Um, for you. You know with all of these things looming with you know probably more coverage on the way more people like looking into your story if there's like one key takeaway from your story that you would hope people would have uh what is it and what are you hoping to you know see come about from your story being shared
2: um yeah so it's a lot um like I told you, I'm, I'm a pretty private person. I came forward and talked to Sarah Smith about this because back when I tried to be vocal, when I was younger, I kind of got silenced. Um, and I felt like if somebody, anybody could read my story and hear, hear me tell what happened to me. Um, it would be almost healing in a way um, that I get to tell it from my own voice. And it wasn't just rumor, you know, everyone had rumors when I left the church and things like that. So I decided to talk about it. And at first, it was kind of just to be healing and to warn others because I knew that the pastor um, from that church was still, you know, an authority and, I was concerned that, you know, this could happen again because my abuse was covered up. Um, And so I also did it for that reason and for the fact that I kind of had a suspicion that my abuser had other victims. Um, I knew of two at the time that I spoke up, so I just kind of had this nagging feeling that there's more, and I still to this day feel like there's more, so... I guess it's multiple answer, answers to your question, but mainly for my own, like to be able to tell my story, um, to help any other victims that there potentially were for not only um, from my abuser, but from the church covering up abuse. Um, so, yeah, I, I just thought it was very important to to speak out about it. And um, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't remember the other question.
0: No, it was, it was really just... What you just said, which is what was the the main hope going into this? Because I think that's mm-hmm. like like I said, with newspapers, with that, and 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 it is too one of those things where you mentioned Sarah Smith, like um, you know, I think of her article or I think of, you know, the recent book from Sarah Stancorb, who's another great reporter. And there's some reporters I feel are very callous and are going for the most clickbait parts of these stories. Um, the the more True crime or egregious angles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what one of the things that's really just, you know, bothered me lately is like I don't feel like there's a victim focus in these stories and like what the victim wants to accomplish in having their story told. Um, I think a lot of times the focus is what will generate our network the most money or our website the most clicks. And usually that's the most harmful, damaging, painful, traumatizing parts of these stories and you know there's a balance there because they're businesses you know and they need to get clicks and need to get views but also i think sometimes the humanity of the story gets lost to where you know sitting in the courtroom in michigan for me you know that was sitting there for me it it added another layer to this whole conversation because i had never read an article or done an interview or done anything up to that point that could really communicate the feeling of sitting in a courtroom with people who are wondering, you know, like, how does this day end? And for me, it was a very changing experience. And I think for anybody who can, I mean, one, to be supportive, I think you should go attend and support in situations like that. But just to get a sense of like what the process is actually like, I think is very important. Um, for, For press specifically, how do you think that reporters, journalists, podcasters like myself, like, how do you think that we can do a better job of asking questions, communicating the story while also not re-traumatizing the person that we're talking to or, or just being harmful or, and I would say even like accidentally harmful, like where something said that just, it, it, it's not helpful (laughs) in the conversation.
2: Um, so after Sarah Smith's article, things kind of snowballed and I had other articles coming out that were written, um, by journalists that had never even spoken to me. So they just kind of pulled from her story and then talked to another person, but never actually spoke to me. And so a lot of the stuff that was put in there wasn't even factual. So then, you know, you already have people, um, That have their negative things to say and then they're reading these other articles that didn't even come from my personal experience they just came from wherever they could find information um and then it just kind of fueled the fire of all of these people that were saying negative things like oh this contradicts what you're saying and it's like Mm -hmm. because i didn't say that (laughs) so i think it's very important if you're going to write a story especially about a victim that you actually speak directly to the victim and get it from their own you know mouth um don't just pull pieces that was one of the most frustrating things for me is seeing things in black and white. That wasn't actually factual. It was mm-hmm. not true. Um, so like even my, minor things like my age was wrong, but that right. can harm a case when you're going to court because you have people reading all of this information. It's not accurate. And then it kind of puts this dark cloud over you of like, is she telling the truth because this mm-hmm. journalist wrote this and it's like, but that, that didn't come for me.
0: <laughs> right. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned some of the things that were said that weren't true. And, um, I mean, are there any things that were like commonly said that you want to address or like anything that, you know, anything that people were running with as being fact that wasn't that to this day, you feels kind of like a longstanding myth about your story.
2: Um, I think a lot of it had to do with just, um, like my age when things happened, sure. um, things like that. Cause my, my stories kind of split into where I was, a, I had the same abuser, but it was two different situations, um, two different times, I guess. Um, so once it happened when I was, uh, 12. And then the other time it happened when I was 14. So, and he had moved to a different state. It was in two different states when this happened. So I think a lot of people were confused about that just by the way it was written. It just, it didn't, um, completely cover that whole situation. So it was very confusing for people to read. And I understand it would be confusing. Um, But I think that was one of the main things. The rest were just like small minor things. Like I said, like my age, um, it said that I was abused on church property. I I personally was never abused on church property. Um, It all occurred at his home. Um, So there were little things like that. I'm talking about in Michigan. right? Um, Now in Washington, that was a different situation. But in Michigan, it never happened on the church property. Um, Now other victims, it did. But in my situation, it didn't. So there's just little things like that that were in there um, that weren't accurate.
0: Right, right. Yeah, there's, um, yeah. And and I'm glad you mentioned the age thing because I think that's something that people tend not to realize is a big deal. But especially when it comes to charges, like, you know, there's a case recently that I've been following and there was a lot of conversation about age. And it's like Mm -hmm. the severity of the charge changes drastically. Like when you get into the, 14 and under, I think is, and then like, or 12 and under or 15 or old, like it can Mm -hmm. change the sentence drastically in the whole, like everything can change just off of that. And I think sometimes people get stuck on like, which is true in a sense, people will go, it doesn't matter what age they were. It's terrible that that happened, which is true, but it can affect what can be done to the person who was committing the abuse. Um, Yeah. and, and,
2: To go off of that, like when I was in um, Washington, which he was charged for that first, I was 14 and I was there for like two weeks and it was repeated um, abuse like daily. And he received five years and he only served three. Now in Michigan, I was 12 and it wasn't as much I don't want to like label types of abuse, but it wasn't to as severe in my mind. Um, but he received 40 to life so, because I was 12. So that goes to show exactly what you just said. Like age does have a big, um, you know, hand in how much time they receive and things like that.
3: Right, right.
0: Well, let's let's talk about that because you mentioned, you know, Michigan and Washington. And I think one of the things that's been a confusion point is, you know he was sentenced twice like once early on and then once you know just recently a year ago um and some people were going why is he getting sentenced twice why is he you know like you know and and some people i think extremely wrongfully so are going why are you still talking about if he served a sentence you know which i mean i don't know what to even say to those people that i can say on a podcast that won't get clipped a million different ways but um but can you explain that for people just as far as like, which, what each of these cases were for and like why there were two different court cases, two different sentencings.
2: Basically all of the, when I reported my abuse, I reported all of it from 12 to 14, everything that occurred. I reported it to, um, with my mom, to the Michigan police, um, now, at the time, the way that they explained it to my mom, because she was more involved than I was, just because I was so young—I was right. fifteen. Um, the way they explained it to her was that Washington was the more severe crime. Basically, um, he would see more time there, and not to put to put me or to, not to put me through as much, kind of. So all I had, he pled guilty. I wrote a statement and he was sentenced in Washington, but he only was sentenced for what happened in Washington, not Michigan. Um, but the way I understood it was the way the law was, and I don't understand the law back then even, was that yeah. he couldn't be charged for both. It was like one or the other. Um, hmm. But after the article was released released with Sarah Smith, um, they looked back into things and said, well, no, he can absolutely be charged in Michigan. Um, oh. And because he had moved out of state, the statute of limitations had froze. So once you move out of the state, like there's no cap anymore. Um, it oh, really? Freezes. Yeah. That's what I learned that it freezes at the time that they moved. So he moved um, right after my abuse had occurred in 2003. So it, it froze at that time.
0: So it's a current crime basically in there. Yes. It's, it's not expired. That's so, see, this is the stuff too. That's like, it's, and it's one of the things you mentioned, like reaching out and finding out information and trying to, is like, there's Mm -hmm. people I think who listen to this stuff or like who hear things like that and are like, I never knew that was even a thing or that's like, that's even an option. Like I've talked I mean, I've talked to people who literally go like, I can talk to law enforcement now. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, or you can. So that's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't know that, um, that aspect of it. Um,
2: so and my I- situation is why if anyone's like, well, it happened so long ago, I'm like, it does not matter. Right. Go to police, report it. Um, if they can't do anything, you know, they'll, they'll tell you, right. but chances are, if they can, I mean. To me, it was like when they asked you want to press charges, I said, yes, absolutely, because I had heard from somebody else that he was still involved in a church in Washington. He was still around children in Washington. So to me, I was like, get him off the streets. So, yes, absolutely. So I always let people know it's it doesn't hurt to try.
0: Yeah and it doesn't hurt to even go a couple times because mm-hmm. law enforcement may, one officer may tell you wrong information yep. ask a couple like go to a lawyer like and if criminal doesn't go through there's or there's always civil side like there are options available um to people um I, I want to talk a little bit just about like the actual Court process because we were there together. I don't know as of this recording, I don't know what's shown, what's not, if it's a couple shots from it or if it's a lot. Um, It was a very powerful day, like I said, for me. I know a hundredfold for you. Um, You know, if you're open to, I'm curious, like, what was the emotion going through your mind in that day? Like, now this is the second time. Seeing some form of justice for this, like, were you? Did you feel excited, relieved, sca- sad, scared, anxious? Like, what was the all of the above in some level? Like, what was the what was your number one emotion? I guess, sitting there that day, wondering, like, how does this come to a close?
2: Definitely anxious. So, I told myself because this was the first time I had seen him since. 2005, when I actually was abused by him. So I'd never seen him in person, even though he had gone to prison previously, I never had to go to court. I literally wrote the judge a letter um, for sentencing and that was it. So this, even though now I'm almost 32 years of age, I have to see him for the first time. So that was very um, hard. I was very anxious. I didn't know how I would feel when I saw him Um, and to have to get up and actually give a statement and everything like that. I was very, very nervous. Um, But as soon as he walked in, it gave me the power I needed to just be like (laughs) guns a blazing, basically. Um, I'm going to stand up here and tell you how I feel. You're going to listen It was very empowering um i still i just felt like chills thinking about it i wanted him to know um exactly what he did to me and how i felt about it and but it was hard because writing your statement you want to be powerful but you also want to let the judge know that this has affected your life and that you are forever changed from it but it was hard to let the judge know that. But also, I didn't want him to think he won over me. Right. So it was very hard to write a statement. Also, yeah. um, and then when they called and said I, I would actually have to testify, yeah. uh, that was. I looking back, I probably should have asked for a break or something. Um,
0: well, that was something that was totally not in the schedule. No. Um, and and I I was trying to remember. What led to it was just something in the statement that the lawyer for Aaron disputed, right?
2: Yes. So they were trying to dispute how many times it had happened, I believe. Um, mm. And so they wanted me to testify to the fact of how many times it had happened, basically. Um, so that was completely a curveball. I wasn't expecting to testify at all. I was actually told I wouldn't have to. Um, And that I'd only, you know, they they said, I don't even have to give a statement. But if you'd like to, you know, it definitely helps sentencing. And so I opted to give a statement because I wanted the judge to understand my mindset and the environment I was raised in. Also, the fact that he was a Bible teacher, like there were things that I wanted the judge to hear um, that maybe he didn't see in all the reports because obviously you can't read all of that or I didn't read all of that. So I don't know what the judge actually knows. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just felt like I wanted him to hear it from me. So Yeah.
0: yeah, no, when, when you were called to testify, it was like a big, like it was a, it was a shocking moment and it was like, it just, it just felt like it did suck the energy out of the room where it was like, and it it did it. it. You, I think, and I think you handled yourself well in all of it in that I, it, it felt like you were empowered more than disempowered, which I think is like, you mentioned the fear is like, does he leave? Yes. Going to prison, but also feeling like he ultimately defeated me. And I don't think that mood was there, you know, and it was, it was one of the most satisfying things ever seeing him in handcuffs, being escorted oh, yeah. out of that room. Um, you know, you mentioned he had been working in another church. That was a big reason for coming forward. Um, and, you know, Sharon, our director, the series, you know, made a choice not to hear Aaron speak at all within the documentary, which I think is great. Um, what's your take on that? Do you wish people could hear kind of the, you know, hear him dig his own hole, so to speak? Or do you like the idea that no one's going to hear his voice whatsoever?
2: Yeah. So when she said that, I liked how she worded it of, you know, we we opted to not give him a voice at all. And right. I I do like that. But at the same time, like you said, just some of the stuff he said in his statement was just. It was laughable. Like, I remember I think we even burst out laughing like I found God in prison, like just <laughs> stupid things that he said. I'm like, are people actually does yeah. he actually think this sounds good? Yeah. So to me, it would make him look um, even worse. So yeah. I do have it on recording, though, somewhere. Yeah. Maybe no,
0: the, <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, no, the, it, it was, I was like, oh, great. We're going to all have to leave the courtroom because the judge was <laughs> like, you can't be doing that. But it was, it was so yeah. laughable given the position he was in when he was committing the abuse to then be like, I found God as his defense is like,
2: yeah well, you were already speaking on. about God as our Bible teacher. Yeah.
0: This time's different. This time's different. yeah um different. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I wanted to ask you specifically about that statement because one of the things, the only reason that I was bummed about it, and I think it's the right decision overall to not let him mm-hmm. speak. But the reason I, the one thing I wish that could be shared was that moment where he's, you know, mm-hmm. where they talk about, you know, finding God and all these sorts of things. And I'm curious for you, you know, what do you think of when people like him say they found God or you see churches, this is common. You see churches yeah. where someone, maybe they served their time. They were sentenced. They, you know, quote unquote repented and they're now trying to change and they're coming into a new church. <laughs> like, Do you put any stake in any of those situations or is it something where it's like at that point you've lost all credibility and trust?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned that because actually in my Facebook memories today, I was reading because there was a clip back when um, somebody was talking about Jack Scott was going to be released from prison and how, you know, they would welcome him into their church because he's just another sinner in the pew.
0: uh, Bob gray. You're yeah. no better than Jack Kiles, yeah. yeah. I have to yeah. put that clip in here for sure.
3: Okay. Let's just, let's just put the rubber on the road. You ready? If Jack Scott walked in here tonight and sat down, Jack Scott walked in there tonight and sat down in the pew where you're at, Good. Right. how would you respond? Some of you are nothing but stinking hypocrites, that's all you are. You think that cock crow's because of you. What if Dave Howells walked in here tonight and sat down next to you? I don't want no whoremonger sitting next to my family. I wonder if anybody caught you late at night watching something on television you shouldn't have been watching. I'm going to tell you something. There needs to be some spirituality, spiritual minds concerning a great army of people who have fallen.
2: And I put a statement on our Facebook page that basically says, you know, we all make mistakes. We all deserve forgiveness, but um, there's just certain people that don't deserve to be a normal part of society again. And that includes in a church, like you should value your um, parishioners and the children in your church over that one sinner. I mean, he can watch the service from his house or something, but when you choose to prey on a child and break their trust in the worst way imaginable, you do not deserve to be just another sinner in the pews. You deserve to never go back in my opinion if if i was at a church and there was a known child predator um i would leave i would not that just goes to show like what you allow um and yeah i i'm definitely not okay with that um he just deserves to have the mark that he's placed on his victim you know you when you do that you place um scars on your victims for life and you just don't deserve to come walking waltzing back and have you know everything pick up where it left off so yeah
0: yeah well it's, you wouldn't have a bank robber be the church treasurer you know like there's certain things that just you, you right. make decisions and you have ramifications and and i guess kind of one of the last things i want to kind of talk about is you know you mentioned that shame and and things and and you know i would hope now you know you don't feel that shame you don't feel at all you know th- this is the actions of somebody else you know this is his actions but it is true that those actions leave a mark in faith communities and people tend to for whatever reason i would say even in society people because they don't want to believe someone's capable of doing truly evil things they tend to be very forgiving and stand on the side of predators and not the people who've been harmed. Because it's a I think it's a easier thing to swallow when it's like, I can't imagine he would do that, or that it's yeah. that bad. Um, and so you do. You have to kind of they've left this mark on you where like again, people can turn on you. There can be a lot of people that don't stand with you. Um for you now, kind of moving forward, like what's been your experience with you know the people around you, do you feel like you've been supported? Do you feel like you have a large network of people that have your back, um, or do you still feel like there's a lot of people, especially maybe in past religious circles, that are like, This is partially on you, and it's always going to be this thing that you have to bear? Like, how have other people kind of surrounded you at this time?
2: Um, so I definitely have support from everyone that matters. <laughs> um, so my right. family loved ones, you know, people's, people whose opinions matter to me, whose opinions matter to me. um, You know, I've definitely been supported there. I think the hardest thing for me was not having the support from um, the church and people within the church. Like you're saying, if, you know, you have this these scars and um, just shame. And I think the reason I still somewhat carry that is because I've never received like an apology, like you were harmed. He's wrong. It was just always um, my fault. And so I can move on without that support. It's just, it's hard that it's still being continued to this day in a way of, you know, our pastor would never do that and, and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. it just, it, it makes that shame continue. So when you, when you're supporting, you know, people that covered up abuse or abused others, you're allowing that shame that that victim is feeling to continue. And I think Although I hate to admit it, I think it will continue until, until you know, there's a big change. I guess. Um,
0: Yeah. Well, I I think you've got a good perspective, which is, you know, and far be it for me to tell you how to feel, but I think you're right in choosing the people that matter and their opinions. You know, especially, you know, it's, it's funny because I think. Sharing this stuff publicly or engaging in this kind of fight publicly, I think Mm
3: -hmm.
0: you know, you understand like there's everybody's got an opinion, you know, there's always Mm -hmm. people that come out of the woodwork, you know, and sitting here not knowing, you know, how much that's going to amp up over the next couple of weeks, you know, it is, I think, important to pick that support system where like you know they have your back and, you know, Joe Schmo on the internet doesn't matter and Joe Schmo in the pew that truly doesn't care about you doesn't matter yeah. um, you know I hope that's something that you know you keep in mind over the next couple of weeks and and for people who feel like they're in the same boat who've been in similar c- circumstances like I think that's great advice just surrounding yourself with like a network of people that truly care is is huge um, the last question I want to ask you um, you know so much has happened in a lot of ways like, a lot of chapters have like went from being open to closing very quickly in succession. And like, it feels like a lot is happening very quickly. um, Or very slowly, depending on the day, Um, you know, for you now with advocacy, with the blind eye movement, with like all of the things that you've been working on, is that something you think you'll do forever? Is it something you think you might now at this point kind of step away from a little bit and, you know, Where do you see the the future as far as like continuing to work in this space
2: um i think i will continue to advocate for anybody that you know needs it and reaches out and i don't actively seek out victims and you know hey i can help but if somebody comes to me like even in my own personal life not even church related that have gone through a situation and and they don't know the steps or the process to seeking justice. Like I, I like to help and it is hard cause sometimes you can get, you know, it's having a balance of knowing when um, it can be too much for you personally and, and making sure that you keep um, yourself safe in the process. So, but I think I will always, um, kind of have a soft spot for other victims and and if they come come to me and are needing help then i will always always do what i can to help um now am i going to make a career out of it or something like that no (laughs) no i think um just helping others has also helped me in a way so it's like you're in the life, you're in the lifeboat now and pulling. Right. That's uh, very preacher analogy to say, but
0: <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I
2: it, learned some yeah. positive points from preachers along the way, but
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so funny you say that. That's one of the things I've been, um, I've been writing a lot more, like just, just I think largely just for myself, but just like putting, you know, I go on walks a lot. I talk about on the show all the time. Like I go on walks because it's like where I unwind. And I've been like writing a ton of stuff just in like Google Docs or like in my notes. And I started writing about like a lot of the things that fuel me now or like a lot of the lessons that I follow now I learned in church, you know, like it just because I follow those things. It put me at odds with the church, like to stand up for what's right, to always tell the truth, to stand firm on these positions, to protect defenseless people. It's like those are all things that were taught in church that weren't acted out. And it's like the minute you do start acting those things out, the church is nowhere to be found. (laughs) And so I think it would be really interesting to continue kind of writing out those things that were like those good lessons that you were taught, that you're still living, that like the church actively does not like, (laughs) you know, I think it's a. I think it's really interesting, but it's look, I, <laughs> I I appreciate you doing this and coming back on. I know that um, I know that you're not a naturally extroverted person who like jumps at the idea of doing these things. Um, You know, if for nothing else, it was great to just reconnect and um, and chat in a less awkward setting, hopefully. <laughs> um, but for those that are listening who. Um, want to follow your story or want to uh, continue seeing things from you, what's the best place for people to connect um, and, and follow kind of your story or or blind eye movement if you want to keep it a little bit separate.
2: Yeah. So we have the blind eye movement Facebook page um, where we post some, you know, helpful tips, things like that. We, you know, if you um, feel like you need help, you're in a situation where, you know you don't know what the next steps should be um just feel free to dm that page uh, direct message and one of us behind the scenes will respond and do everything we can to help you um but yeah i have my personal facebook page i'm just like i said i'm a very private person so a lot of my stuff's pretty private but yeah um,
0: yeah yeah um. Awesome. Well, yeah, definitely check the link in the show notes and go check out the Blind Eye Movement and you can kind of see everything there. And um, and I guess uh, in this docuseries, they're going to see you. So you can go to HBO Max or I guess just Max now. Go check yeah. it out. But thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, it's so nice not having massive cameras in our faces <laughs> this whole time um, And uh, and really look forward to chatting again in the future.
2: Sounds good. Thank you for having me.